You're listening to City Church Manchester. We are a church that invites everyone to enjoy Christ for the glory of God. If we can serve you in any way, then visit our website at citychurchmanchester.org to find out more. We're going to read the Bible now, so um, please do grab a Bible if you've got it with you, or maybe look it up on your phone. Um, We're going to be reading a passage from 1 Timothy, chapter 2, and we're going to just be reading from verse 11 to 15. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Ralph's going to come and preach to us now. Well, thank you so much, uh, Katie. And hello, everyone. That's quite a passage, isn't it? Uh, To get up and prepare to preach from. Uh, So I think I need some prayer. So let let us pray. Uh, as we begin. Father God, thank you that uh, your word is what we need, Uh, even at times when it's not what we want, when it doesn't say necessarily the things that we find easy or comfortable. We know, as we've seen earlier on in this series, that your word brings life. Your word transforms and grows us, and we pray, Lord, in your mercy, may that be our experience today. Amen. Uh, Well, one of my favorite films growing up was Mary Poppins. Uh, I have two sisters, and uh, we used to love watching it. We watched it a few times a year, and so I I know most of the lines from it. And there's this scene uh, right at the beginning, which is really, really funny. So uh, Mrs. Banks, who is the mother in the story, she comes back. She's been at a a suffragette meeting, uh, campaigning for for votes for women. And she returns to her home, and she begins to dance and sing with the maids, the sister suffragette song. And in the middle of the song, there is this line, take heart, for Mrs. Pankhurst has been clapped in irons again. Do you know it? You're all looking at me like I'm mad, okay? (laughs) Um, one of my favorite films. Now, this Mrs. Pankhurst, she is uh, none other than Emmeline Pankhurst, uh, the Moss Side resident who did more for women's rights in the United Kingdom than any other person. You see, Manchester is the birthplace of women's rights in this country. It is a city in which we treasure freedom and equality for all. So a sermon which says that men and women are different. More than that, a sermon that says that what men and women do in church is different, well, that really rubs against the grain, doesn't it? It's not very Manchester, is it? In fact, we might say it's not very 21st century either. Listen, I know what I'm going to be talking about today is controversial. I get that, okay? But can I ask you just to suspend judgment for the next 30 minutes? Can I ask you to give the Bible a fair hearing? 
I'm not saying you have got to agree with what the Bible says. I'm not saying that you've got to agree with what I say. But if this book is what it claims to be, the very word of God, then we must listen to it. Because if it is the very word of God, that means that it is true. It means that it is good. And it means that it is beautiful. We're in a series titled Reformed, an ancient map for a modern life. It's a short series, and we're just going to spend four weeks, and we're right at the end now, four weeks looking at what we believe as a church standing in the Reformed tradition, a tradition that goes right back to the very first century church. And we've seen so far that being reformed means that we have a high view of Scripture, of the Bible. It means we have a high view of God's sovereignty in salvation. Last week, we saw that it means that we believe that God works through his people, the church, us, to, to transform culture for the good of our city. And today, we're going to see that it means that we hold a particular view about the roles of men and women in church life. Reformed churches are, are almost always what is termed complementarian. But unlike the other three aspects of what it means to be reformed that we've looked at, historically speaking, this is not distinctively reformed. You see, up until the mid-20th century, pretty much every Christian denomination, Catholic, Protestant, everyone, agreed that the authoritative teaching role in the church could only be occupied by an ordained man. And maybe you're sitting there and you're thinking, well, <laughs> of course, of course. But they were just creatures of their culture, of their time, society up until the mid-20th century was just misogynistic. Women were expected to stay at home and do the dishes. They, they couldn't vote. They, they couldn't be a teacher. They couldn't be a doctor. They couldn't be a lawyer. So, so no wonder, no wonder they couldn't be a church pastor either. Perhaps. Maybe that is the reason. But something that every single one of us here today needs to wrestle with is the fact that until very recently, no one thought that any other view could be accommodated with what the Bible clearly teaches. Uh, Robert Yarbrough is professor of New Testament at Covenant Seminary. Uh, and he did a bit of research. He did a survey using a standard bibliographical tool called the New Testament Abstracts. And what he did was collected all the scholarly articles on 1 Timothy chapter 2 and other passages dealing with the roles of men and women in church th throughout history. And he discovered that it was not until 1969 that what is sometimes called the egalitarian view began to appear in the literature. After 1969, the literature was flooded with articles coming from the egalitarian perspective. His conclusion 
is that the rise in the egalitarian interpretations promotion since the 1960s, he says, is indebted significantly and at times probably culpably to the prevailing social climate rather than to the biblical text. In other words, it was culture that guided the interpretation of the Bible, not the Bible that guided the interpretation of culture. Let me just set up briefly what we're going to do this afternoon. Firstly, we're going to look at what the Bible says. That's verses 11 to 12 of chapter 2. We're not going to think right at the start about what they mean for us today. Instead, we're going to ask, what did they say back in the first century? Then secondly, we're going to think about why, why it says this. That's verses 13 to 15 of chapter 2. And then finally, we're going to draw out some, some practical implications for what that looks like for us here at City Church. Does that make sense of where we're going? Yeah? So firstly, what is 1 Timothy chapter 2 actually saying? Well, this book, it is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to his much-loved apprentice, Timothy. And if you just flick back one page to chapter 1, verse 3, this gives us the context for Paul writing. He writes, verse 3, As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, that's in modern-day Greece, stay there in Ephesus, which is modern-day Turkey, so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer. So we're told Paul left Timothy in Ephesus to help the church in Ephesus get established. He was there to put in place leadership for the church. That's chapter three of this letter. He was left there to to ensure the church made provision for caring for the vulnerable people in the church. That's chapter five. And he was also left there to give instruction to the church leadership on how they should go about their public worship. That's chapter 2. So in chapter 2, Paul instructs Timothy on how the church is to worship and pray. That's verses 1 to 7. In verse 8, he warns the men in the church about disrupting public worship through their anger or their combativeness. And then in verses 9 to 10, he he warns the women in the church against getting distracted by matters of outward appearance. And then he launches into verses 11 to 12. Now, do you see the significance of the context there? Listen to the theologian Don Carson explaining it. He says, whatever the prohibition is here in verses 11 to 12... It seems to be in the context of the gathered church. In other words, verses 11 to 12 are not about how men and women interact in the office, the boardroom, the high street, or the bedroom. They are about how men and women interact in the church, in gathered worship, and they are only about that. So let's look at verse, verse 11. It says this, A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. 
Now we read that, and let's face it, the thing that stands out to us is the prohibition, isn't it? The thing that women are not allowed to do. But we need to be careful because actually verse 11 starts with a positive command. Did you notice that? It's actually a truly radical positive command. It says, verse 11, a woman should learn. And we think, of course they should learn. Of course women should learn. But you need to understand, this was truly radical to Paul's first hearers in the first century AD. You see, at the time, Jewish women, they were usually not permitted to, to study the Torah, their scriptures. Therefore, Jewish women couldn't teach other Jewish women. That was a men's business. That wasn't open to women. So what Paul is saying here. Is, is culturally revolutionary. Women must, they must, must be able to learn in the church. No one is allowed to stop them from learning. And of course, what Paul is saying here is not unique to him. He's really just repeating what Jesus said and repeating what Jesus did. As you read the gospel accounts, it is astounding how a first century man repeatedly and determinedly taught women one-to-one from the scriptures. No one did that at the time. This chapter, chapter 2 of 1 Timothy, insists that women must be free to learn from the scriptures and to study the scriptures in the church. But I guess that's just the first part of the verse. What about this command for them to be quiet? It sounds like Paul's telling women to shut up, doesn't it? Yeah, especially in verse 12, that that sounds like what he's saying. But we need to realise that the same word for quiet, the Greek word hesekia, is used in both verse 11 and verse 12, And it's actually quite a rare Greek word. It's only used in two other places in the whole of the New Testament. And one of those places is Acts chapter 22, verse 2. And there in Acts 22, it's used to describe how a restless crowd quietens down in order to give Paul an opportunity to speak and in order to give them an opportunity to hear. Do you see? The the quieting is is the quieting in order to learn, in order to hear, in order to enable everyone to hear. That is what Paul is saying here about women being quiet. It's not that women must never speak in the church. It's not as if women have to go around in hushed silence while all the men are allowed to talk. No, it's that women must be given space to, to hear the Bible taught. To, to digest the teaching, to, to learn, just as the men learn. The church leaders, Paul was saying, remember that's who Paul is speaking to here. He's speaking to the church leaders, and he's saying, you must provide, you must provide a safe space for women to come along to church and to hear the life-transforming teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. Without the distractions of of men being angry and combative and of women just being obsessed with outward appearance, no distractions, whatever they are, should stop anyone from listening and learning 
from the word of God. But what about verse 12, where Paul writes that he does not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man? Now, there has been lots and lots of debate about exactly what that word translated assume authority. The Greek word authenteo. There's been lots of debate about what that means. And the question boils down to, does it mean exercise authority or does it mean usurp authority? Uh, let, me, let me illustrate this. Uh, in the United Kingdom, we have had three female prime ministers. We've had Margaret Thatcher, we've had Theresa May, and we've had Liz Truss. So we know that in the UK, a woman can exercise authority over the whole country. We know that to be true. But it is the current Home Secretary, Suella Bravman, started trying to manipulate Rishi Sunak. Well, that would be wrong, wouldn't it? because you would be usurping authority. Do you see the difference? And some people say, well, well, the word used here in verse 12, authenteo, that means to usurp authority. So there were women in the church of Ephesus who were trying to usurp the authority of the leaders of the church, and Paul is saying, stop doing that. There are four problems, I think, with that understanding of the word. Firstly, there is virtually no evidence that authenteo is used to describe usurping authority. There's a few instances, but usually it's not. Secondly, if it did mean usurp authority, then, then why is it just a command to women, not to men as well? Thirdly, why is teaching also prohibited in this verse? if it's only about usurping authority. That doesn't seem to make sense. And then thoughtfully, the fact that Paul roots this teaching in creation in Genesis 1 to 3, we're going to come back to that in just a few moments, that suggests that this has a wider application than simply to problems going on in the church in Ephesus. So it seems like Paul is saying here that in the context of the gathered church, women are not permitted to exercise authority or to teach with authority. Those two words, authority and teaching, they are closely connected in the original. Now that's a hard teaching, isn't it? It offends our modern sensibilities. It might even make some of us feel angry right now. Maybe that's you. But can I say that it is a good thing to feel angry about some of the things that the Bible says? It is good to discover things in the Bible that you find it hard to accept. Why? Well, because if we didn't find things here that we struggle with, then we wouldn't be able to have a personal, satisfying relationship with the God who gave us this book. Tim Keller has a great illustration here. 
Have you ever seen the film The Stepford Wives? It's been remade more recently. The remake was rubbish, so probably no one's seen this, but I'm going to tell you what happens now, okay? The Stepford Wives is set in Stepford, Connecticut, and it's about a group of men there who decide that they want really, really beautiful wives. That's good, yeah, having a beautiful wife is a good thing. Uh, But they don't like the way that their beautiful wives talk back to them. So they come up with this great idea to put microchips in the heads of their beautiful wives. So all their beautiful wives ever do is say, uh, yes, dear, yes, dear, yes, dear, whatever you say, dear, yes, dear, yes, dear, yes, dear. And so they're perfect wives. But the problem is that they don't have a personal relationship with their wives now. Because you don't have a personal relationship with someone who always says, yes, dear, yes, dear, yes, dear, yes, dear. You only can have a personal relationship with someone who can contradict you, who can argue with you, who can change your mind about something. Otherwise, you're simply having a relationship with a robotic friend, with a robotic wife, with a Stepford wife. And you see, if I only ever believe the parts of the Bible that don't offend me, that don't go against my modern sensibilities, then I've got a Stepford God. I've got a God who will never offend and never contradict me, but I've got no personal relationship with that God. I simply have a God of my own creation. And you might think, well, that's a pretty good thing, actually. I quite like to have a God of my own creation. Uh, He will always please me. He will always agree with me. And he will always say, you are fine. But you know, the problem with a God of our own creation is that he cannot help you when you are guilty. You see, when, when we feel guilty... We need a God who we haven't created, who is able to say, you're forgiven. When we feel worthless, we need a God that we haven't created, who will say, you're loved. When the voices in our head tell us that life is not worth living, that we are nothing, that we are not important, we need a God who is not a step for God, who is not a God of our own creation, who says, no, listen to me, not to your own heart. So it is good, it is good today that we find parts of the Bible that we struggle with. If we didn't, there could be no good news to sinful, fallen people like us. But I guess that still leaves the question, well, well, why? Why does the Bible say this? Take a look at verses 13 to 15. If you've been coming along to our Bible toolkit series on a Thursday night, still come along. It's going to be running this Thursday. But if you've been there already, you'll know that the word that starts verse 13 is really, really important. It's the word for, the Greek word gar, and it tells us that what follows in verse 13 provides the grounds, provides the reasons for what we've read in verses 11 to 12. And Paul takes us in verses 13 to 15 
back to the very beginning, back to creation. And he teaches us three things about order from the doctrine of creation. First up, he shows us that order is creative. We're back in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 in verse 13. In Genesis chapter 1, we're told how God created. And it has this picture of six days of creation. There's an order to it because the first three days, they are days of separation. Light separated from dark, the sky separated from the sea, and the land separated from the sea. Then the next three days, they mirror the first three days, and they're about the filling of those recently separated spaces. The implication is clear. As God brings order to his creation, as he separates things out the first three days, it provides the necessary context for bountiful flourishing and creativity. Now just flip back to Genesis 1 and verse 27, we're told how God created the first human beings. God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created the male and female, he created them. Now this verse tells us two really important things. Firstly, it tells us that there is a fundamental distinction within humanity. It is a biological distinction. Some human beings are male. It's written into the DNA of every one of ourselves. And some human beings are female, hardwired into their biological makeup. In other words, human beings, we are different. Distinct. But we are equal too. Did you notice that? And did you notice the basis for our dignity and worth? It is rooted, verse 27, in the fact that we are made in the image of God. That means that we are made, every single one of us, without exception, we are made for a relationship with God and in order to represent God in the world that he has made. It's sometimes suggested that the human rights and human dignity would be better protected if we just left behind all this Christian stuff of the past. But listen to the British historian Tom Holland in his book Dominion. He says that every human being possessed an equal dignity was not remotely a self-evident truth. A Roman would have laughed at it, The origins of this principle, as Nietzsche has so contemptuously pointed out, lay not in the French Revolution, nor in the Declaration of Independence, nor in the Enlightenment, but in the Bible. That's a non-Christian historian. The basis for human equality, the basis for human rights, it is right here in the Bible, it is Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, that is the only solid foundation. We are valuable because of who we are, created in the image of God. And notice, just looking at verse 28, notice that, notice that what we do flows out of who we are. Because we're made in the image of God, verse 28, 
We are to bring order to the world and we are to make it flourish. We are, every single one of us, God's representatives. Now friends, this is the complete opposite of what our culture and society teaches. Our culture and our society teach that you are what you do. So if you get a good degree, if you get a good job, if you marry a good husband or a good wife, then you are important, you are valuable. Which of course means that the unborn, the elderly, the disabled are of much less value. But, but the Bible says, no, 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 no. That, that is not it at all. You do what you are. You do what you have been made to be. And that has implications. Because God has made men and women distinct but complementary. That's what Paul is saying back in chapter 2 of 1 Timothy. Just turn back there with me if you turn to Genesis. Turn back to 1 Timothy chapter 2. It's what Paul is saying when he talks about the fact that Adam was formed first. Now, it's not a mere matter of chronology there. Okay? If it was just about being first in time, well, then pigs would be leading the human race because pigs were created before human beings, according to Genesis chapter 1. So that's not what it's saying. What Paul is talking about is is the process of forming humanity. God created man, and then he created woman out of man in order, Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, that woman could be a helper for man. Now, we hear that word helper, and we think home help, don't we? And we think, that's pretty demeaning, isn't it? But that's not what it's saying. That's not what that Hebrew word helper means. How do I know that? Well, the very same word in the Hebrew original is used to describe God himself. God, according to Psalm 115 verse 9, is Israel's helper. It's not about subordination. God is over Israel. But it's about the order of their relationship of how they live and be together. Which means, according to Genesis chapter 2, there is order within marriage, and it is good. And because the church is the household, the family of God, according to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, we see the same order within the church. In verse 14 of chapter 2 of 1 Timothy, Paul moves from creation to fall, and he shows us that disorder decreates. It's important to say that, that Paul is not claiming here that Eve was more sinful than Adam, and that's why men must lead in the church. That's not what he's saying. The point Paul is making is that Adam abandoned the responsibility he had to lead Eve. You see, he should have been lovingly leading Eve as together they lovingly led and looked after the creation. But in Genesis chapter 3, a creature, a snake, who we find was Satan, is the one who leads Eve, who is the one that leads Adam into sin. 
You see, it was a disruption of the created order and it brought sin and death into the world. It decreated. It fragmented creation and made the world a dark and a dangerous place to be in. But verse 15 brings glorious good news. Now, this verse, it is notoriously difficult to, to understand. Some suggest that it means that faithful women will be saved from pain and suffering in childbirth. Now, I've got to tell you, okay, the empirical evidence against that view is pretty strong, okay? Having been present at the birth of three children, I very much doubt that that is what verse 15 is saying. Other people suggest that the verse is simply saying that women should be faithful and loving in their call to, to give birth and to raise children. That could be what it's saying. That could be. But I don't think it is. Because something really interesting happens in verse 15, and I'm afraid that our translation here, the NIV, is really not very helpful. It says here, but women will be saved, plural. But actually in the original, it simply says, she will be saved through childbearing, singular. And then it switches to plural in the second half of the sentence, if they continue in faith, love, and holiness. So what's going on here? Well, I think in the first half of verse 15, Paul is still speaking about Eve. Or at least it's about a descendant of Eve. You see, after sin and death came into the world in Genesis chapter 3, God makes an incredible promise in verse 15 of Genesis 3. He promises that a child of Eve will come and that Satan, Satan will, will seek to bite him but that this child of Eve would crush Satan beneath his feet. You see, Genesis 3 verse 15 is pointing forwards to a faithful woman to come, who according to Luke chapter 1 verse 38, cried out, I am the Lord's servant, may your word to me be fulfilled. This faithful woman was the daughter of Eve who brought verse 15 of 1 Timothy 2, who brought salvation through childbearing, who faithfully followed God's order so that the world could be recreated, so that the world could be forgiven and restored through the birth of a child. You see, Mary, the daughter of Eve, she gave life to the very source of life itself. She was the one who, through childbearing, gave life to the one who said, I am the resurrection and the life. To the one who one day would say, even though he was equal with God the Father, yet not my will, but yours be done. Order, bringing redemption. Redemption, life itself, comes through God's good order the recognition that we are equal and yet different. So what does all this mean for us at City Church? Well, very briefly, 
We believe that verse 12 teaches that the authoritative teaching role in the church, that the role of elder is only open to men. It is not open to all men, but only those men who meet the qualifications that we find in the very next chapter of 1 Timothy. Now, that is not because men are better than women. It's not because men are more gifted than women. It's not because men are better leaders or or better at teaching the Bible than women. We know that that is not true. Some of the best leaders and the best Bible teachers here at City Church are women. We know that. The, The reason we believe that is simply because that's what God has told us right here in the Bible. It's important to say, as I said in the beginning, that this is about leadership in the gathered church. Nowhere else. So while we believe that this would prevent women from preaching on a Sunday here at City Church, only elders and prospective elders preach on a Sunday here because we believe that it's authoritative teaching over the whole church. Although we believe that that is not allowed, it would not stop a woman from leading and teaching in a small group, in a connect group, in a seminar, or even in an equip track. Indeed, we have had that happen here at City Church. Nor does it have implications in other areas of church life. It certainly doesn't mean that we support the sort of gender stereotypes that you see in some churches. Like women always being the ones who do the flower arranging, and you know, men always being the ones who do the DIY and, you know, put the sausages on the barbecue. I I hate those sort of gender stereotypes, probably because that's just not the sort of guy I am. So much so that when I was at a church that had flower arranging, I insisted on going along and learning how to flower arrange for a whole day. I'll tell you what, I learned a thing or two from doing that. (laughs) Nor does the Bible suggest in any way that women in the church should submit to men in the church in general. That is nowhere taught in the Bible. Rather, this passage and other passages like it tell us, and when I say us, I'm saying all of us here today, both men and women, we are called on to recognise order, which means that together we submit to the authoritative leadership and teaching of the elders of City Church. We all do that. Even I do that. As an elder of City Church, I sit under the authority and the teaching of my fellow elders. But ultimately, it's important to say, we didn't come up with this at City Church. We believe this only because it is taught right here in the Bible. Black and white. But I also need to say that we are not apologetic for it either. Because we believe that God's purposes are good. God's purposes are right. God's purposes are beautiful, even if we don't understand them. Let me be honest with you. If I was the one who wrote the Bible, 1 Timothy chapter 2 would look pretty different, okay? I wouldn't have come up with it. But you know what? I wouldn't have come up with salvation for the world coming through a pregnant teenager from Nazareth. I wouldn't have come up with strength being gloriously displayed through the ultimate display of weakness. 
I wouldn't have come up with life coming out of horrific death. I wouldn't have come up with God's glory being supremely revealed through his own humiliating isolation and nakedness on a Roman cross. But God did come up with it. And praise God that he came up with it. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we don't always understand your ways, but we trust that they are good. We know that you are a God who speaks and life comes into being. You're a God who orders and we flourish. You are a God who sends. And Lord Jesus, you are a son who submits and goes that we might be redeemed. Thank you that life, that redemption, that forgiveness, that restoration has come for a restoration of order. Thank you for our glorious saviour. Thank you for the mystery, the mystery of the cross. Amen.